1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Pastor Josh and I did not plan this, but there's a fair amount of overlap today that I cannot help but see, and maybe for a reason. So, 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to read this morning from the verse 11 verses. So stand with me as we hear God's Word for our church today. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things become our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lust And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as... Examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And everybody said, Amen. Pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak through your word and by your spirit to us today. Give us ears to hear. Father, we sense there's something here for us. Very powerful, very important, very relevant. Help us, God, to get to this word and to get it in us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. This passage is given as a warning to the New Testament church as an admonition. As the teaching of the Old Testament is not just there as a pattern of redemption. It's there for that. It gives us the pattern of God's redemption. But it's also a pattern of admonition for us. It gives us lessons from which we can learn some good things, whether it be the life of Joseph, the life of Moses, the life of the children of Israel, we receive admonitions from these things. And here in this passage, Paul is speaking to the New Testament church, and these two chapters are, are largely about taking the Lord's Supper, verse, uh, chapters 10 and 11. And here he warns the New Testament church, the Corinthian church, about the three problems relating to the children of Israel. And I, it could be four or five problems, but the three primary ones are lust, idolatry, and grumbling. Now, it may come as a little bit of a surprise to you that God killed grumblers. We don't normally say to that to our children as we tell them not to complain or not to whine, but this is true, that God responds to this grumbling in a very strong way. And I want to explain to you today one of the reasons why that is the case. But, uh, but first, let's look at Romans 1. I want, I want to go back to Romans 1 this morning to get a better idea for why we are where we are today in American society. So let's go with Romans 1. Flip over there if you want to. How do we wind up 
as a society and the terrible disaster of social sins that you find in first century Rome, first century Corinth, Pompeii, or as I said, modern day America. How do you wind up in the condition where we are today? That's my question. Romans 1 gives you the entire explanation for that. We are at the point now where the worst possible sins are celebrated by almost every media source, including Fox News and practically every university. The apostasy is total for American institutions. We've reverted to Romans 1. And Paul gives us an idea for how you wind up there. How do you get to verses 28 to 32? Back up to verse 21, and you'll see how you get to America, how you get to Pompeii, how you get to Rome. How do you get to this point? Look at verses 21 to 25. These are the root sins that lead to to verses 28 to 32, where Paul gets into these extremely socially destructive sins, which is where we are today. Romans 1.21, let me explain here the root of these issues. Paul starts here. Although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Key words, nor were thankful. Three of the most key words in Scripture, don't miss them. They did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So how do we wind up where we are today? We wind up where we are today because we worshipped man. We worshipped the creature instead of the Creator. Because of humanism, because we glorified self, we glorified man, we turned out to be unthankful, we turned out not to be content with God's good gifts, and then that gives way to perversion. So that's the process. The process is to glorify man first, to not be content with God's good gifts, not to be thankful, and then we wind up in the perverted lifestyles that we see all around us today. The anorexia rage of the 1990s turned into the transgender rage of the 2010s and 2020s. Why is that? Remember anorexia just coming in in the 1980s when I was at junior college in 1981. Um, But that, of course, took off. That became very popular in in America. That has given way to the transgender rage of the 2010s and 2020s. That's because they worship the body. They worship self. Man is worshiping self. And because he worships self, he degrades himself into the worst possible conditions. Worship of the body produces anorexia, eventually produces the utter insanity of transgenderism. Because worship of the body turns into hatred of the body and discontentment with a body that the Creator provided. And that's how you get to transgenderism in our world today. The worst element of discontentment is a dissatisfaction with God. The discontentment with what God has given to us and ingratitude for God's good gifts, including our own bodies. Well, in this passage, we find the children of Israel were not happy with God. They were not happy with Moses, their leadership. They were not happy with manna. They were not happy with the promised land. They were discontented. And children, 
This is the first point in your notes. The Israelites grumbled, they complained, and they whined. And that kind of thing happens a great deal in our homes until we learn about God's good gifts and how to be grateful for the good gifts that God has given to us. These folks were discontented. It was manifested in grumbling, a lack of appreciation in their language, and a constant grumbling over the things they did not have. And as they were grumbling, God killed them, and their carcasses rotted in the wilderness. Now, there are some unbelievers that throw up the accusation that God is too severe. That what you find in the Old Testament, God destroying these people, killing these people, and what you find in the New Testament where God kills Ananias and Sapphira for a little white lie. Uh, they lied to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and God killed them for it. And they see that, that Jesus himself is threatening killing people in churches of the Asia Minor area in Revelation 2 and 3. And they say this kind of church discipline is too severe. God is too severe. Well, my encouragement to these unbelievers and squishy evangelicals that look at God's behavior in judging this kind of sin as too severe, to bring that up on judgment day. They can step up to the throne room of Almighty God on judgment day and say, God, I think you are too severe in the way you handled the Israelites and the way you handled Ananias and Sapphira, and we'll see how that works out for these folks on judgment day. Too severe? I don't think so. God is very severe against the sin of grumbling and complaining, as he is with, social, with sexual immorality and other things we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. God kills these people and their carcasses are rotting in the wilderness. So I guess the first thing I want of all of us is to just sit up and pay attention and realize that God is dead serious about these things and this admonition he's bringing to the New Testament church, including our church here today. God is serious about these things. Now let's move on to the definitions. Discontentment is manifested in grumbling and complaining. It's a horrible condition. Consider the boy raised in a Christian home, and I want to apply Romans 1 to this young man. He complains about the food. He complains about his father and mother. He complains about his parents' rules. He complains about his church. He's never grateful. He never has the right perspective that he has not been raised in a brothel. He's not been raised in the garbage dump in Mumbai, India. There are children raised in conditions a hundred times worse than what he has ever experienced. Yet you look at his face and he's just unhappy. He's discontented. This little boy is discontented. And as he gives way for this discontentment, his mind turns into a demonic nest of judgmentalisms, criticisms, dishonor, pride, idolatry, lust, pornography, and eventually homosexuality. That's where it goes. Or consider the dad and mom whose life is filled with criticism and complaints, criticizing each other criticizing their children's behavior, criticizing the church, criticizing civic conditions, complaining about taxes, complaining about the price of food, 
complaining about airline service, complaining about the quality of cars, complaining about things breaking down, complaining about bad customer service, complaining about the Wi-Fi, management at work or other parts of their work, the weather, complaining about other people complaining or other people's sins or complaining about afflictions. This is, this is the manifestation of a discontented spirit. Discontented people are just miserable people. Discontented people will perpetually seek to change their situation. They want to change their bodies, their geographical location, their work, their spouses. And they take their discontentment everywhere they go with them. Their misery just compounds as they move from one situation to the next. Okay, that's what discontentment looks like. So we're trying to define discontentment. I want to get on to contentment in just a little bit. But the root of this, the root of this is that these people are not just complaining about Moses. They're not just complaining about the church. They're complaining about God. Their problem ultimately is with God. It's a bitter, evil attitude towards God. You ask yourself, how did I wind up in the circumstances I find myself in? How did I wind up with these parents? How did I wind up with this spouse? How did I wind up in this community, or whatever it is? Well, God is the one who brings these details together in our lives. God determines your life and my life. And so... By developing this discontentment towards all of these circumstances of our lives, we're ultimately complaining against God. It is a foul ingratitude, the willful, rebellious refusal to see God's good gifts, the refusal to see that the glass is 99.9% full, I mean 100% full, and instead focusing on that thing which God does not give to them. So grumbling is rebellion against God. It's a hatred of God. It's throwing God's gifts back into his face. So the sooner we we admit to that, that that is the root issue in our grumbling, the better. Because now we have something to repent of. Grumbling arises out of a bad perspective. The refusal to see that the grumbler deserves hellfire forever. We all deserve death. But what is this? What is this that we're experiencing today? It's, It's better than death. It's better than hell. This is better than what we would experience receiving the judgment of God in hellfire forever. Grumbling has a bad perspective about ourselves and our, our situation and about the goodness of God, that God is good. The grumbler develops this idea that he's good and God isn't. And that's really the perspective that develops in this young man's life or anybody else that falls into this pattern. The grumbler is setting his own will against God's will. Not your will, but my will be done is what he says. He opposes his will in every situation and usually attempts to take control of everything. So anger and control often flow out of this, you see, because there's no contentment. He wants things better, and he will make things better for himself. And he'll do it. He'll fix everything according to what he wants. And of course, in the end, he doesn't achieve it anyway. 
The grumbler gives way to sinking discouragement and depression over his situation. His heart is so distracted with the things that aren't going right in his work that he can't worship God. He can't do his devotions. He finds no delight in the word and worship. He's constantly distracted and unsettled and tumultuous of spirit and frustrated with his law in life. He's not happy with God with God's plan and purpose and God's word and God's work and God's promises and God's gospel. Just bah humbug to all of that. Now, that's his perspective, you see. Now, I think we here we're getting down to the very root of it, all of it. The very worst element of all discontentment in the hearts of men and women is right here. It's the rejection of the gospel. Because the Israelites were not impressed with the Red Sea. They weren't impressed with God's redemption. They weren't impressed with God's gospel. And this ultimately boils down to faithlessness in the goodness of God. Children, they did not believe in God's goodness. So this is the absolute most intense evil of all. This is the root of all apostasy. It's the refusal to receive the gospel message, the good news that comes from the lips of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 4. That's just another example of it where Jesus stands up to read the best news ever from the book of Isaiah. I've come to set the captives free. He announces it and he says, today this has been accomplished in your sight. And the people in Nazareth responded by just pushing him over the cliff. I don't want any more gospel preaching in this church. I'm so tired of hearing the gospel message all the time. I don't need any stinking gospel anymore. It's just boring to me. I don't receive that. It doesn't have any relevance in my life. I can't see the implications of this amazing gospel message that's being brought. So they just shoved him off the cliff, or tried to shove him off the cliff when he brought the gospel message to them. Same thing was happening in the Old Testament with the children of Israel. It's the discontented churchgoer. The ultimate apostasy, the rejection of the gospel message. It's just not basking in the goodness of God, not not finding and discovering the, the, the great and powerful work of God in bringing about our redemption at the cross of Jesus Christ, that's just old hat. But the reason it's old hat is because they never really received it. That's the problem. And so if they never really received it, they're not going to be content with it, and they're not going to rejoice in it. So, brothers and sisters, may God deliver us from any tendency to ignore the gospel, to depreciate the gospel, to find no joy in the gospel. That's the end of faith for anybody who's ever attended a Christian church. That's the end of hope. There's no more hope for you if you can't rejoice in the gospel message. Now, let's define contentment positively. We've looked at discontentment. Now let's look at contentment in the positive sense. Contentment is the idea of sufficiency. It's the idea of I've had enough. I, I have enough. I, I am blessed. I have everything that I need. And we look back at our lives 20 years ago and we ask, you know, if I had known that God would have blessed me with all of these things 20 years ago, I would never have imagined it. I, I'm, I'm blown away at how good God is to me. I, mean, I could die now for all the good things that God has poured out upon my life. You know, that, that's the kind of attitude that the contented person has. That God is so good and God has been good to me. 
Contentment's friends are gratitude, happiness, and peace. Contented people are grateful people. They're happy people. They're peaceful people. And they don't give way to lust and greed, as we've read here in 1 Corinthians 10. Contentment does not give way to envy and covetousness, hating others for what they have or wanting to get what others have. This is a soul that's satisfied with something besides material well-being and physical well-being. The physical and the material are much lesser concern than the spiritual. As Paul says in Philippians 4, I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. This is a soul that's satisfied with God. The relative adjustment of comforts, whether he lives in a dungeon or a castle, has little effect upon him. He can abase or abound either way. His ministry can be, you know, a thousand or everybody turns on him. He's down to one. His savings account can go from a million down to ten bucks. Not that big of a deal for these guys. This is the contented soul who is content with God's plan and God's purpose. He doesn't doubt the ultimate wisdom and goodness and power of God to bring about the perfect plan in his life. You know, the uh, problem of evil for the atheist is that God is good and God is powerful. So how in the world does he allow evil in the world? The one thing they miss out on is God's wisdom. They forget to put God's wisdom into the mix. And we as Christians, as we see ourselves in the midst of afflictions, we can say, I believe that God is ultimately good. I believe he'll bring an ultimate good end to all of this. I believe God is powerful enough to achieve that good end. And thirdly, I believe God has a wisdom that can bring that all about. And his wise plan and purpose is far wiser than anything I could concoct in my own mind. So it's a trust in God's wisdom, you see. It's a trust in God's power and God's goodness for our own lives. The contented soul is satisfied. He takes pleasure in God's perfect plan. He doesn't sing the hymn, Whate'er my God ordains is right as a funeral dirge, but he sings it as, as a praise hymn. Whate'er my God ordains is right, holy his will abideth. I will be still whate'er he doth and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. I, he holds me, though I shall not fall. Wherefore to him I leave it all. And he sings that with, with a sense of joy, with a sense of contentment, with a sense that God has this, and it's all, all going to work out well. So it's more of a praise hymn than a funeral dirge. Now let's get back into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 just for a moment. I want to review the passage for us, just kind of run through it briefly. The children of Israel in verse 1 and 2 were all baptized into the church by passing through the Red Sea, man, woman, and child. They were not immersed in the water. Uh, but they were baptized as they walked through it, as they walked through between the walls of the water. They were baptized. All of them were. There was a household baptisms going on as they were baptized uh, through the Red Sea. And then verse 3, they participated in the Lord's Supper together. You see that? All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. They, they ate the spiritual food. They drank of the spiritual rock. These were the church members. They had been baptized church members. They were now uh, drinking of the same water that came out of the rock, which was Christ. And, uh, but here's the problem. They didn't follow up with faith. Psalm 78 said they did not believe in the God of their salvation. In verse 5, we find here, most of them God was not well pleased with them, for their bodies were scattered in, in the wilderness. So they didn't follow up with all that they received. They didn't follow up with this great 
picture of God's gospel is redemption of the Red Sea, this baptism through the Red Sea, and this uh, drinking of the spiritual rock, which was Christ. They didn't see this as their very life. They didn't see this as the goodness of God and the redeeming power of God in their lives. They should have received it by faith, but they didn't. They didn't follow up with faith. And this is what happens oftentimes in American churches. There are those who are baptized. There are families that are baptized. There are children who are baptized. They, they, they drink and eat of the, the Lord's table. They participate in these meals, but they didn't follow up with faith. And God is not well pleased with them. Their problems are threefold, arguably fourfold, but let me hit several of these. Their problem first was idolatry. That is, they had the problem of serving other gods. They go to church, they hear the word of God preached from Sinai, and then they go home and worship the God of money, sex, and power. Within an hour of the sermon, they're back to fighting with their spouses over the God of self. So, so you know, they get the preaching at Sinai, but it's not very long before they're, uh, they're stripping down and they're dancing around some false idol. They still like Egypt, and the redemption from Egypt really wasn't worth anything to them. So their problem first was idolatry. Secondly, their problems were lust and sexual immorality. They ate of the spiritual food, and within an hour of the service, they're back into the pig pen, looking for lust in all the wrong places. They're not content with what God gave them, People who are not content are grabbing for something else, something more than what God would give to them. So they give way to lust and to sexual immorality. And then their problem was grumbling. And brothers and sisters, I think there's a lot of grumbling and pornography and idolatry in American marriages and churches. I think we have problems with all three of these in American churches today. The root issue is they're not content with what God has given to them. They're, they're not content with Christ. They're not content with the water from the rock, which was Christ. And that's the argument that Paul brings here in 1 Corinthians 10. Contentment is to be satisfied with God, with the gospel, with Christ. God has given us His Son. He's given us glory. He's given us heaven. What more do we need? And that is really the issue brought out in the most simple terms of all. God has given us His Son, and He's given us the promise of heaven, the promise of glory. What more do you need? That's the question for you. If God has given you His Son, and God has given you the promise of glory, what more do you need? That's really the question, isn't it? Just to boil it all down, that's it. Okay, well, just to wrap it up, how is contentment manifested? Let me give you two ways in which contentment is manifested. The first way is by true and abiding joy in your life. By true and abiding joy in your life. The pinnacle of Christian experience on planet Earth is to experience real joy in suffering. It is a confidence in God's goodness while you're in the fire that you've already received the promise inheritance. You've already been a beneficiary of sins forgiven. And we've already received all of this. We're receiving the victory. We're more than conquerors through our sufferings. We know that now. And we will achieve and receive ultimate victory and ultimate glory in eternity. So, so that's 
because of that, because of that perspective, we can experience joy in, in a time of fire. Now, I want to give two ministry examples in Scripture, and I put these two together because I, they're helpful for me, and I think they'd be helpful for you as well. This is from the Old Testament, New Testament, it's Baruch and the 70 disciples who were sent out in the New Testament. So here they are. Baruch is the Old Testament assistant to Jeremiah. And Baruch is very down, very upset. And he says, the Lord has added to my grief, sorrow, I fainted my sigh, I find no rest. And Jeremiah 45, verse 4, the Lord God has a message for this man, Baruch. He says, thus you shall say to Baruch, thus says the Lord, behold, what I have built, I will break down. What I have planted, I will pluck up. That is, this whole land. And do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them, for behold, I will bring adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Baruch's problem, the problem with many of us, is we focus on our own successes and failures. That is, we're focusing on our own works. We're not focusing on God's work. We're not focusing on the gospel, what God has done, what he's doing in my life and your life. Rather, we're focusing on what we do. We're concerned with our successes and our failures. But to focus on your successes and failures will take you up and down, up and down. It will be one of the most miserable joy rides in the world. Same thing for relying on the kudos of men. That's, if that's your deal, you're going to be up and down, up and down, and you will be down and depressed in a day in which you do not experience those successes, especially in the midst of your afflictions. But now, look at uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 20. This is where the 70 have come back, and they've experienced a great deal of ministry success. They're pretty impressed. I mean, this, this is just the opposite of Baruch. Baruch, of course, everybody is pretty much walked away from faith and time of the exile and they, they burned up the scroll that Baruch put all that work into putting together. And it was just a terrible time for God's people. But here we see the 70 have gotten out there and they are on the top of their ministry game. They're casting out demons, smacking these big monsters like superheroes in one direction <coughs> or the other. <coughs> Quite an amazing experience. Uh, High point in ministry, and you'll have this in, in your life where you experience high points as well as low points. But Jesus tells these folks in Luke 10 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So, brothers and sisters, let's take this apart. Baruch is down, the 70 are up after their successes and failures. The source of joy is hope. The source of ultimate joy in our lives and sustaining joy in our lives in the period of suffering is, joy, is, is hope in glory, hope in what God has done. The current status is not the sole metric of success or joy. The source of your gratitude is who you are, where you live, what you've already received from God and where you are going. So you, 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 have to, you have to get your mind straightened out on these things. You have to ask yourself, who am I? I'm an heir with Christ of this amazing glory that awaits. That's who I am. I have been redeemed. I have been forgiven. My name is written in heaven. 
Our sins are forgiven. We're going to glory. Eye is not seen. Ear is not heard. God has promised you these great things. You are eternally privileged. You are the heir of 16 quadrillion dollars in a spiritual benefit or eternal benefit, and you didn't deserve any of this. Now, if your perspective is set by the things that matter, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, your sins are forgiven, your name is written in heaven, then it doesn't really matter if you're experiencing successes or failures in your ministry, in your family life, or any other part of your life. God has already given you all of this, and that's all that matters to you. Let me ask you this, what if your sins weren't forgiven, and yet you were successful in all of these other things? What if your name wasn't written in heaven? What if you were not redeemed from the devil? What if that was the case? That would be a pretty sad situation for you, wouldn't it? So ask yourself, what if I didn't have any of this? But now we realize, by the promise of God and believing the promise of God, we are the recipients of these good gifts, and our response is a constant and consistent joy and satisfaction and contentment all the way to glory. Okay, second manifestation of contentment. The first is joy, or an abiding joy. The second is a predominantly grateful language in thought life. It's important from time to time to step back and say, how is my thought life? What does my conversation sound like? Record yourself for 24 hours. You can do that. And do a computer analysis of your discussions with your wife and your friends and your phone calls and everything else over a period of 24 hours and, and try to identify your thought patterns, your conversation. Do you have a predominantly grateful language and thought life? It's interesting, the Apostle Paul does. If you've read Paul's letters, you know he is very upbeat. Whether it be the Corinthians or the book of Romans or any of the books, Philippians, he may be in prison as in the case of the Philippians, uh, but he's still rejoicing in the Lord greatly all the way through. Romans 16, very interesting chapter. Here he is warm, he is upbeat, he is thankful. Over 20 verses, he commends 25 different saints in Rome with some of the most affirming language possible. And then he follows up with one verse, a warning. Brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to doctrine you learned and avoid them. So there is note, uh, there is a requirement for discipline within the churches, but there is this overall positivity about Paul's conversation. Paul always emerges with a very hopeful and affirming language for the churches that he writes to. So I, I want you to note the spirit of Paul in the Philippians, the Romans, etc. He is very contented with God's work, very thankful, very warm. The contented person is overwhelmed by God's goodness, God's work, God's salvation, God's transforming work in the churches around the world, and that gratefulness just pours out. Let me close with several, several applications. Just a few applications. We wrap up. One of the ironies about contentment is that you cannot force somebody to be content. Because that's not contentment. You can't just tell somebody, hey kids, just be content. It doesn't work. It only aggravates the discontented people. Contentment is an inward, natural impulse. It comes naturally. It's a derivative. You've got to get the other stuff first before you get to this. 
So that's why people aren't content, because they haven't gone to the, the source. And the source, ultimately, of contentment is faith, hope, and a reception of God's gift. If they haven't received God's gift, if they don't have faith and hope, they're not going to be joyful in trial, and they're not going to be contented with their lot in life. So contentment is an inward, natural impulse that's a response to faith and hope and reception of God's gift. But let me give you several applications. Given that you have Christ and you are content with Jesus Christ, you already have contentment. And so I want to encourage the natural outflow of affirmation and gratitude in your language. So I'm just saying, follow through on the language. You know your perspective. Your perspective is you've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been bought by the blood of the Lamb. And so now you have your, your son and a daughter of the living God. And, and he cares for you. And his, his hand is on your life. And he's taking you to glory. So you know all that. And so, brothers and sisters, a natural outflow of affirmation and gratitude as a result of that. Why do you need to be a grump when you have Christ? Why do you have to be a grump when God has done all of this for you? See, again, ask yourself these questions. You've got to regain perspective sometimes. I think it's the perspective that gets wrong. So we can be content with God's Word. You know, sometimes we're just looking for all this other wisdom. Well, why don't we just grab God's Word and be content with that? Ultimately, God's Word is where we're going to receive all of the wisdom that we need. Let us be content with God's grace today and not be seeking what will happen tomorrow. Right? God's grace is sufficient for today. God's grace will be sufficient for tomorrow. We don't have to be anxious for the morrow. Be content with God's grace today. Be content with the talents that God has given us. Let's be content with God's law to follow the instructions He's given us. Be content with waiting for glory in the state of perfection. It will come in God's timing. Let's be content with God's order by which Christ brings His enemies under His footstool. Okay, so first, I encourage you to a natural outflow of affirmation and gratitude. But secondly, watch your thought life. Are you focusing too much on your sin and not enough on God's gift of forgiveness and cleansing? Or are you focusing... Too much attention on other people's sins, which only produces bitterness in your life, and you don't want that. Are you focused too much on your afflictions? Sometimes we we grab our affliction like a little pet dog, and we just sit there and pet the thing all day long. That's That's not very much fun, because the thing bites too. So you don't want that. Let's not be petting our afflictions. Rather, let's focus on God's growth of faith in our lives. And the good things he's doing in us through all of this. It's interesting, Joseph never seemed to look much on his afflictions, but only on maximizing upon his situation to grow and to glorify God in his position. It's one of the best examples in all of Scripture of this. So try to keep Joseph in front of you, you know. What a great example that even as he's going through all these unbelievable afflictions over what was it, 21 years of his life. And this wasn't just a six-month affliction. This went on and on. But praise God, he was able to maximize the situation, be faithful, look to God, his presence with him, and glorify God in everything that he did. 
And then also, Philippians 2.14, this is my third application. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. How are we going to shine in an age of perversity, transgenderism, discontentment, body image, anorexia, and homosexuality? How in the world are we going to shine in this world? People are so miserable. People are so discontented with their bodies and everything else. Well, don't grumble. That's what the Word says. Don't, don't be, you know how people are going to whine about the weather as you're checking out in, in the grocery store. Don't do that. Don't whine about the weather. Praise God for the weather. It's just in the little things. God is good. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Have happy homes. Ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, do you have a happy home? Do we have a happy home? I think we should ask each other these questions. Uh, Phil Kaiser, a pastor brother from Omaha, says one of the best ways to identify how we're doing in the Christian life is simply ask the question, how's your joy? I think one of the best questions to ask families is, do you have a happy home? Or is there fighting and disputing and anger in your home? Are you discontent with the way things are going? Are you complaining about your wife or your husband or your children, your parents, your church, your food, or your brothers and sisters? And, and you know, sometimes we just don't complain about our wives out loud, but then there's something about them that's bugging us, and it's the back of our head, and we're thinking about it. Let's, let's mortify that sinful thought. Let's, let's get rid of that immediately. That, that's such so ungrateful. That's such a horrible horrible response to the good gifts that God has given us in our lives. Amen, brothers? We have no business complaining about our wives and our thought life. So I'm just saying these little things. Don't be grumbling. Don't be complaining. This foul spirit has got to go, brothers and sisters. Let us hate this thing of grumbling and complaining. Let's cry out to God for His salvation. Run to Jesus Christ to save you from this very yucky monster that will take you down to hell. Jesus came to free us from these terrible sins, these awful perspectives, this blindness, and this misery. Who wants to live that lifestyle of grumbling and complaining anyway? I don't think anybody really wants to live that lifestyle, and yet people do. So let's just cry out to God that He would save us from that perspective and, and that lifestyle. Finally, I have one more issue to, to mention because I think this is important. What about ambition? Ambition, is that discontentment? Those of you who are a lot like me, just very motivated in life to do this or that, I fell into this sin big time. So brothers and sisters, be careful about ambition. It has no place in the Christian life. Ambition, as the world presents it, is just another form of discontentment. Well, then what, what is it? What should we do? What should motivate us? Love for God. Being faithful to the talents He's given to us. Being engaging as good farmers on the land that He's laid out for us. So I think the key is this. Christians are given talents, and they apply the talents they have at the moment as good stewards. So in other words, we need to go back to the drawing board over and over again. God has given me the resources I have. How am I doing with that? Be faithful in small things first. Let's not invest talents that have not been given to us. Does that make sense? 
So, so let's be faithful with what God has laid out before us now. If he's given us one talent, let's be sure we're doubling it. And then later on, he'll give us the three or four or five, and then we can double that as well. But it's a matter of talents. Our Father has given us talents, responsibilities, and he's challenging us to be faithful to the responsibilities he's laid out for us. It all comes from God, and it's not that self-will that goes out and grabs more and more for ourselves, but rather to look to God for the good gifts that he's given us and to be faithful in small things. So, brothers and sisters, before you complain, let me just give you these five questions. I realize we've gone over a lot of material this morning. Before you complain, ask five questions. What has God done for you over the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of your life? Not just in the physical sense, but the spiritual sense. God has worked on you. He's worked on your faith. He's taken you through those trials, and he's making gold out of you, and you're starting to see it. And if you can't see it very well, ask your father or mother. Ask your wife or husband, are you seeing me growing? And this is one of my most encouraging conversations I have with my wife is just to say, what was I like 15 years ago? She, oh, you were a jerk. No, she wouldn't say that. But she, she just does see that God is working in my life, and that's the best thing. You know, is it worth it to go through all the afflictions and trials that I've been through in the last 15 years of my life to achieve an increase in faith, an increase in love, an increase in hope? Amen. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's worth it all. First question, what has God done for you over the last 10 years or 20 years or 30 years of your life? Second question, where could you be now but for the grace of God? Think about that for a moment. Where could you be right now but for the grace of God? Come on, you know yourself. God just let you go? Didn't put the right people in your pathway? You weren't raised in a Christian home? You didn't get some of that good input from the beginning? Oh man, I know the potential of old Kevsky of, uh, if I had just been let go to do whatever my own fleshly intent wanted to accomplish for myself. would have been terrible. God did some amazing things in my life. He even preserved me some gross sins in my college years in some miraculous ways. I look back at what God has done in my life. I would not be here but for the grace of God. And I think everybody here can say that. Third question, how good is God? So again, before you complain, ask yourself, how good is God? What is the potential of His goodness? You've already seen a lot of it. God is infinite in terms of His goodness, in terms of His love. In terms of, he's more generous than your dad. He's more generous than I am. He's amazing in terms of his goodness. What is the potential of God's goodness in your life? What will eternity look like given the infinitude of the goodness of God? Ask yourself that question. How good is God? Fourthly, does he have the wisdom, the goodness, and the power to pull off his big promises for you? What do you think? Does he have what it takes? to pull off these great and wonderful promises for you and for me. Oh, yeah. And then finally, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Ask these five questions, brothers and sisters, and I think you'll be a lot less likely to complain. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, we turn to you now and just ask for your salvation from the sin of grumbling and idolatry and lust and discontentment, all these things, Father, please deliver us by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrifice of his life on the cross for us, by the power of his resurrection. Enable us, O oh God, to mortify the sinful lusts, 
and rise up and walk in newness of life in this issue. Father, we would not be grumblers. We would not be miserable complainers. We would much rather be those who love you, have received your gift of the gospel, and then see the magnitude of the, the gloriousness, the goodness of our God in the gospel and in your promises. God, that we would see it today. Oh, God, that we would be more grateful. Oh, God, that we would be more, more contented. Oh, God, that you would send your Holy Spirit to us, that we would better understand how good you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to the Lord's table, I wanted to draw from Luke 17, and I'd forgotten as I prepared this that this was the next passage that Pastor Josh is going to bring out tonight. So he stole my thunder, now I'm stealing his. So it turns out we are preaching over each other again. Um, but that's okay. Let me read Luke 17:11, the ten lepers. And it came to pass, as Jesus went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Everybody say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory of God, save this stranger. And he said to him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. The point of this little pericope in the life of Jesus is that ten men were cleansed externally of their leprosy, only one was cleansed eternally and spiritually, internally. It was extremely hard to heal leprosy. There was no cure until 1940. And people re remanded to leper colonies for 4,500 years of world history. It was an irreversible trait. In fact, when we were in Molokai, you could look down over the cliffs and see the old leper colony that was maintained in the early part of the 20th century on Molokai in Hawaii. So that sort of thing was the way they did it for 4,500 years. It was extremely hard to heal leprosy. It was impossible. It's even harder to heal the spiritual disease of sin in your life and mine. Right? It's, it's even harder you want to heal the problem of lust inside of me, that's harder than healing leprosy. That's a whole different level. Also, the interesting thing about leprosy is that the disease is not painful. It just slowly eats away in your body in a sort of painless death. The bacteria creates its own anesthesia. Bacteria attacks nerve endings and destroys the body's ability to feel pain and injury most people do not feel their spiritual pain and their horrible spiritual disease. They don't feel it unless they looked into a spiritual mirror and saw their faces eaten away in the most horrible disfigurement than you could ever imagine. So you need a spiritual mirror, just like the lepers need a physical mirror to see how horrible the death is 
that has descended upon them. We need a spiritual mirror to see the grotesque spiritual disease that is taking us down to hell. And that is, of course, the Word of God as brought to us by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that you're going to see it. Okay, so, but what's important here is that Jesus commended this man for his faith. This man, I believe the reason this man came back is because he realized that something big had happened to him. Something impossible had happened to this man. The, the reason why the children of Israel were not grateful is because they forgot the miracle of the Red Sea and they really didn't think it was a big deal. And so when we forget the Red Sea, or if we were to forget Calvary and the redemption that, that God has brought to us through Jesus, if we forget these things, it becomes no big deal to us. We don't realize the impossibility and the amazing miracle or supernatural work of Almighty God that happened at Calvary for our own salvation. We forget it. But this man, somehow, the other nine said, oh, you know, uh, ten lepers healed all at once. When you think about it, one could be explained, right? He didn't have it. But ten, ten men, something impossible happened to ten men at the same time. This is awesome. This is impossible. Only God could have brought this about, and this man recognized it, came back to Jesus, fell on his face, glorified God, and he thanked the Lord Jesus Christ for it. And that's what I'm hoping will happen for us today at this table. I'm hoping we'll come back to Jesus, throw ourselves on the ground, cry out, a, a cry of, of glory to God, praise to God, and a thanksgiving prayer to Jesus as we come to this table today. What has happened to us is impossible. It is only something that God can do, the magnitude of which we still have not figured out. So as we come to the table, let's give Jesus thanks. As the Samaritan leper who was healed did on that day, let's come, let's fall down before Jesus, and let's just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for me. Why this is called the Eucharist. It's a table of thanksgiving. We thank God for the blood and bread and wine, which signify the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son. We thank God for it at this table. Let's thank the Lord and let's praise our God together as we come to the table today. Our Father God, we delight in your great sacrifice that you've brought, this great gift. We receive this gift today by faith. We respond in thanksgiving. Father, help us to see with the clarity of this man who could see the glory of God and the healing of lepers. Help us, O oh God, today to see the, the glory of our God and the healing of spiritual leprosy in our lives Oh, God, that we would see the greatness of your miracle of salvation that you brought through Jesus Christ today. Please help us to see it. And Jesus, we're here to thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Where would we have been without your cleansing blood, without your forgiveness of sins, without your powerful redemption that came by your blood to redeem us from the power of Satan and sin? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.